0: My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber, I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer, and you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. It has been a while.
1: Yeah, as they say in Japanese,
0: Love it. Uh, means it's
1: been a while in Japanese. Thank you. <laughs> so, How's your, how's your uh, two months been? My two months. Yeah. When was the last time we did a pod? No, it's not been two months, mate. It's been like four weeks, I think, four okay. five weeks. How's your month been? How has the month been? Mate. Lots going on. Yeah. Lots going on at work. Uh we're all moving to a new flat
0: on the weekend. It's quite cool. We're moving to a new flat. Yeah. Do you want to fill fill in the viewers? Yep. This might actually be the last pod we record here in the Yeah, location. this this is probably gonna be the
1: last location pod here on the sofa. We're moving to a new place at a different part of town. Me and the wife and the brother.
0: <laughs> you know, it's a good thing you added that because we we don't want people to leave comments talking about how yeah, otherwise how awful have, you are to your wife. Have, yeah, that yeah. would oppressive. That's not allowed here. Yeah. That
1: would have been oppressive.
0: Um, um. So we're moving yeah, to a new so place. The three of us are sticking together. A little how family. Did, how did
1: we decide to stick together?
0: What was the rationale there?
1: What was the process? Um, I feel like it just came up like randomly. Like, we were all in St. Albans and we were talking about like all, all finding new places, and then someone was just like, wait, why don't we just stick together
0: or something? Yeah. I think I suggested it. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Because I was thinking, like, I was looking for, we were we were sort of discussing what sort of budgets we're looking yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. And I was looking for a place and we were looking for a place for the business, and I was like, uh, do I want to be in, do, do I want to get a place and have an extra two bedrooms for the business stuff? Mm. And then I was like, wait a minute if I've got some rent to pay and the business does and you guys do, mm. what if we clobber all three together yeah. and get an absolutely sick place? Yeah, pull it all together. Pull it all together? Yeah, so I think that has been quite good.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're moving on the weekend. What else has been going on?
0: Interestingly, so I had I had dinner with a, uh, a friend of ours the other day who also has a sibling and um, she and the husband and the sibling and the sibling's husband all live in New York and she mentioned that, like, yeah, we just we 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 uh, didn't even think about living together. You know, they were all they were all they were all, were all, yeah. all living in broadly the same area of New York. And I was like, yeah, why not? That you know seems a bit weird. You know, you guys are siblings. You're yeah, married, yeah. Why not Why not live? Uh, why not live together? And she was like, in in fairness, you're doing the more weird thing. So I feel like you're the one who needs to justify why you're living with your brother and his wife. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it that, that is actively weird. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I think like. I can imagine... I mean, these friends are all like a few years into ma- being married and stuff mm. like that. Um, yeah, like... You know. I think it would, it might have been a bit more weird if like you didn't know Lucia or something. Mm. If it was like I got married to someone you don't know that well. And then... And then like... You were like, hey, let can I share a flat with you guys? Or I was like, hey babe, can my brother share a flat with us? (laughs) You know, that would be a bit weird. But I think given that like, we all know each other and stuff, I think that does change the equation. And given that, like, you and Lucy have been housemates for a while, that also changes the equation. So, yeah, I think, like, it's weird if you hear the surface-level facts, but it's, it's nuanced.
0: Yeah, I guess back when I used to say that I live with my my brother's girlfriend, people would also think that's a bit weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, when you hear the surface-level facts, <laughs> right? Yeah. but with a bit of context,
1: it all, it all clears right up. Yes, yeah, so that's what's been going on. What have you been up to? You had some kind of retreat last weekend? Yeah,
0: I went to this Effective Altruism Long View Philanthropy Retreat, which was great. Um, What does that mean All of that Oh we know what Effective altruism
1: means Do we Well We should by now Listeners Yes Otherwise known as
0: Spreadsheet philanthropy (laughs) Some might say Uh, Yeah so what's this Long view whatever So long view philanthropy Is an organization That I think Advises um, Advises Foundations And people who are Giving money to charities Mm. On Where they can best Use that money To impact Like the long term future Mm. broadly so i think some of the stuff that they're like there were three three or three or four kind of big topic areas in this long-termism stuff um broadly long-termism is the idea that we should take uh we ought to take the we we we, we ought to consider the lives of people that are living in the future with some degree of worth mm. um and Broadly, broadly, four topic areas that we talked a lot about on the retreat were number one, artificial intelligence and mm-hmm. the risks of artificial general intelligence, otherwise known as AGI. Secondly, uh, nuclear, the risks of nuclear. We've had nuclear weapons now for 77 years. And in all that time, other than Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we haven't really seen their destruction. Mm. But since then, their destructive power has increased like stupidly large amounts. Mm. Um, there are six or so nations around the world that have the power to create, to launch, to start a nuclear war, which could literally cause extinction of the human race. Mm. And we keep on threatening to use the bombs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I it's think like Putin did that today. Oh, was it today? Damn. I think it's um, so, all like yesterday or something. Un, somewhat yeah. not up to date with the news. Yeah. It's, it's pretty scary shit, man. It's like we've had these weapons for ages. We keep on threatening to use them, and like if this doesn't stop, eventually someone will use them. Mm. And I'm listening to a book at the moment, which is which was on the recommendation of someone I met at the retreat who works in nucle- has been working in nuclear policy for like three decades. It's called The Bomb, mm. and it's about like the history of nuclear oh, so. weapons and warfare yeah. and stuff from like the 1960s onwards and like what awesome. happened with the Cuban, yeah. cubans what happened with in the cold war what happened with like pakistan and india getting nuclear power what happened in north korea and why what the hell was going on there yeah, yeah. and it's just an incredibly interesting story of like politics and bureaucracy and like the u.s air force versus the navy versus the army versus the marines and all the sort of mm. politics going on in between them that caused all of this stuff to turn to yeah, end yeah. up in a nuclear arms race with the soviets and the, and the and the u.s so nuclear is another big category where it's like shit this is a serious thing which is generally under sort of somewhat neglected mm. by people um so we've got ai we've got nuclear we have biosecurity which is sort of engineered pandemics being okay. like a yeah. uh, potentially big area of threat, mm. where as the technology for um, quote gain of function, so being able to engineer viruses and stuff, yeah, yeah, gets better and cheaper and stuff over time. Yeah, um, the risk that a random dude who would have otherwise been a school shooter deciding to create a bioweapon massively increases, uh, yeah. even outside of nation states doing that. Mm. And number four, the no number four was moral value docking, which is some stuff around like retaining okay so wait so what was morals? the purpose of this retreat it was basically to get about like somewhere somewhere between 50 and 100 uh, people together who are all somewhat related to who, who are either either working in philanthropy or working within like effective altruism stuff or who um run foundations or deal with funding decisions okay. or media people which is why me and ah, okay. a couple of other youtubers were there and some journalist type people right So, yeah, it was great vibes. Like, fantastic place. Wow, nice. Very inspiring. Whereabouts was it? It was in Ascot, which is near Heathrow Airport. Yeah, i yeah. I dropped Nani off at Heathrow and it was like, oh, it's gonna be a two-hour drive and it was like a 15-minute drive. Oh, really? I was like, sick. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was great. Hung up with our pal, uh, William McCaskill, Mm. while while, we were there. Yeah, just great vibes all all around, made some friends, made some contact. Are you more, like, uh, worried about the long-term future now? I am more more worried about the long-term future now. Really? But I think, you know, it's like. Worry is a strong word, but I think I think there's also you know reasons to be optimistic, reasons to be cheerful, because mm. there's people working on this stuff, and it was it was genuinely I think I think before getting getting into this stuff, thanks to our friend Lucia, um, I would have I would have regarded philanthropy with a bit of skepticism of like, hmm, what's what's really going on? Yeah, here? what are they really up to? And I would have bought into the whole sort of oh the Gates Foundation is corrupt because really when they're trying to encourage agriculture, it's because he's a landowner and it's like <laughs> okay. well you, oh, you know clearly there's some ulterior motive at play here and like meeting people who are actually in charge of kind of billions of dollars of funding and stuff it's like really nice and sincere and genuinely want to make the world a better place yeah and that like it really got that whole va- ah, okay some nice yeah. wholesome nice vibes so you're a bit less like cynical about the whole thing yeah hmm. so that was good that's cool and we're currently in the midst of a uh batch podcast recording week for that the mean? deep dive podcast what's a batch week so you I just did four, four interviews on Monday, three yesterday, two today. Wow. Yeah, no, it's been solid. Has it, is that like fun. fun?
1: Do you not like lose the energy or whatever? Or no, it actually really it's actually
0: really fun. It's really fun. Um, yeah, I think even like, like three in a day, it's like having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with someone mm. where I'm not doing much of the talking. I'm letting them talk and I'm just asking the questions I'm interested in. Mm. So it was sick. Um, I think made a few new friends as well that I'm trying to be more like intentional about keeping in touch with and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah just great vibes all around me
1: mate nice one yeah sounds like you've been having a blast not not recording not overthinking
0: absolutely feeling very content sick yeah how are you feeling broadly content levels contentment levels i think there's one to two
1: work things that currently are perturbing my inner state they'll be sorted out by the end of the week what what genre of thing are they oh just like a kind of high stakes thing going on and yeah, just gotta, gotta do it. Just gotta, yeah. mm. bite the bullet, pull pull the trigger. Excellent. Pull the plug. Pull the plug. No, I don't know what the connotation is. Pull the <laughs> plug. Pull up. the plug
0: implies firing someone <laughs> or oh, canceling no. a project.
1: No, 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 there's no plug pulling. There, there's, there's no, no trigger pulling. pulling. <laughs> there's no pulling of the plug. There's no there's no plugs being pulled. So yeah, you know, just some uh, pretty pretty standard work stuff. Um, yeah, but this week I've had. I've had two, I said this morning and yesterday morning I had like breakfast. I feel like breakfast meetings with people where, yeah, it's it's like work adjacent. Yeah. I'd say like work adjacent breakfast meetings are a great way to start the day Mm. because it like, it's, 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 yeah, it gets you out of bed. It's like fun. It's, it's usually energizing, hanging out with someone and it's work adjacent. So like, it's fun, but also like, it's getting you more motivated to like do work somehow.
0: (laughs) Mm. Yeah to continue the capitalist machine yeah exactly
1: whereas i think if like for example a, like a pure social breakfast i think it would be fun it would maybe be energizing and just on a social level but it you know what once like an hour is up it'd be like oh damn i wish i could continue hanging out with my mate <laughs> whereas i think with a work adjacent breakfast is like you know once the hour is up like you both know you want to kind of start the work day and you've been talking about work adjacent things and maybe even work things.
0: And so you're like pumped about it. So it's actually, it's great. If one were to be a fly on the wall for one of these, con- like, like what does an archetypal breakfast work adjacent conversation look like?
1: Yeah. So this morning I met another founder who uh, is a, yeah isn't in, in town from Spain for a few days. Um, they, they, their product is also like a data type of product um they're a causal user and so you yeah, know they kind of just hit me up and yeah just kind of hearing hearing the story seeing a demo of their product just yeah just like talking shop basically yesterday i met a guy who was a previous colleague back when i had a real job and we've kind of stayed in touch and now he's actually Join a company that I used to work at, and yeah, just yeah, just like these kinds of things. Where it's like, oh, cool, yeah. How do you know this person? You know, how do you get connected? you hear about their experience with this other thing, and then like shout about like what's going on at your company, and like yeah, just like shoot, yeah, shoot the shit. It's great.
0: Yeah, fair play. Yeah, um, you have some Twitter drama to share. <laughs> oh yeah, basically, <laughs> what, what's going on? Yeah, so <laughs> we should we should we should have a segment in the podcast when when we start doing it with more regularity of like. Uh, current affairs, current but, affairs, <laughs> but through Twitter.com. <laughs> like, what what's new in the meme dealership? What are people memeing about, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So basically, what seems to have gone down in the past couple of days is that Adam Adam Levine, who, the singer of Maroon Five, yeah, the lead singer of Maroon Five. Um, he uh, some twi- some Instagram, uh, a, a, a woman came out and did a TikTok video about ha- about like DMs that Adam Levine had sent her. I think I think she's like, uh, she's some kind of model maybe, something something to that effect. I don't know exactly how it unfolded, but basically, oh yeah, I think she like, she privately shared some, like, she probably showed like some trusted friends like, oh, hey, you, like, you wouldn't believe who's sliding into my DMs. <laughs> and then one of her friends sold, <laughs> sold that knowledge to the tabloids, <laughs> And so then she basically like came out and was like, look, all right, look, it's basically already out there. Here's the sitch. Here are the DMs. This is what, like, yeah, this was the situation, etc. This Wait, is a, feel about So it.
0: Adam Levine is is messaging random models on Instagram. Like, what's yeah? What, I don't know how is, long ago this was. But what is it, bad about this?
1: Uh, he's a married man with a few kids. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think uh, that's what most people I see aren't, aren't thrilled about. Um. So yeah. Anyway. Uh, so this this one this one woman came out with like the screenshots and there's like like two two like interesting screenshots that she shared. Okay. Of of what like the DMs, think? like. Um, I mean, look—it's not the most—it's—it's it's not the most savory of stuff. But like, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll—I'll—I'll I'll, I'll read out a meme of it on okay. off of Twitter. You'll get the gist. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I like super want to like re- repeat this or even yeah even like spread the story or something. But um, yeah, basically signing into some DMs and the DMs are now coming out. When, whenever fa- whenever like famous people are like. You know, when these reveals happen? I always think, like, if you're a famous person, why would you even, <laughs> like... Sure, why would you
0: DM anyone? Yeah.
1: Like, why would you DM a random person? <laughs> like, how, how would this not blow up in your face, <laughs> you know? It's mental. Okay, so what people have been, been doing, is they've been taking, like, a snippet from the DMs yep. and re- recaptioning it. Um, okay, yeah, You fine. know, recaptioning it. <laughs> All right, so this DM says, this is, this is like, two messages. Says, it says, it is truly unreal how effing hot you are next message like it blows my mind okay so that's okay. a dm so that's a dm that adam Levine said, too, said to some, random some woman okay some some like and that's not fake babe on instagram um that's not fake okay and now someone has captioned this it, it is truly unreal how effing hot you are like but, uh, someone captioned this goldilocks trying the first ball of porridge <laughs> 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 yeah, it's just pretty funny. It's just you know the uh, the juxtaposition and all that. Yeah, you know, blah blah blah. Anyway, that was that was kind of a funny thing I wanted to share.
0: No, um, oh, have you got any
1: more memes that are like this? Yeah, or are they somewhat unsavory? I don't know how I feel about even like talking about this mm. story on on the pod. I don't. Yeah, it's not to be shared. You know, you know, for the wife and the kids. Again, this is like this is not a good situation for basically everyone. Is, isn't isn't your
0: Instagram account being a meme dealer?
1: It is but like it's mostly tweets yeah i think like i think this kind of stuff, like look it's entertaining but
0: yeah i don't know i feel a bit weird about like sharing this oh, okay so you would have drawn the line about sharing memes about like matt hancock back when that was a thing
1: maybe yeah I, i'm not sure how i would have thought about that what about the queen yeah oh yeah the queen yeah the queen passed away uh in the past few weeks and she she did yeah
0: is the queue still a thing or have they closed the queue now who knows
1: yeah, I was surprised at how upset I was about it. Mm, I thought same, I, w- I yeah. thought I wouldn't react. I had a little cry about it on the evening. Oh, nice. Yeah, I wish I'd gone and like gone to Buckingham Palace that evening, just stayed in, had a had a chill one, watched the live stream and watched lost. But I wish I'd like gone out there and like been part of the people, you know.
0: Mm. Yeah. Feels like a once in a lifetime. Yeah, exactly.
1: So situation. yeah, I was actually pretty gutted by that. Um yeah, with regards to memes about the queen, I think on the day Look, <laughs> I've definitely liked one or two things, okay? Likes over over the past two
0: weeks. Over the past two weeks. You've, you've liked one or two things? Yes. So that's things that Twitter. So things that you have felt sufficiently uh, like is socially
1: acceptable to like. Look, I found lots of things funny. I haven't liked them. <laughs> okay. And actually, someone, someone someone did a really funny tweet. Like, I think the evening of, like the evening it happened, someone tweeted, Lord, please forgive me for the tweets I'm about to like in the next couple of days or something. Um, there were yeah. Look, there's been funny jokes about it. There have been funny jokes about it, um, for sure. Um, but, yeah, I was pretty gutted about it, actually yeah anyway look we better get to the meat of the yeah plot. what is it what are we so The last about time there? we were going through some highlights from the rise and triumph of the modern self <laughs> were we i was thinking today we can continue that feels like s- s-
0: such a long time ago yeah um okay can you remind me what is the thesis of the rise and triumph of the modern self oh no in fact don't remind me <laughs> <laughs> i r- I, rem- I seem to remember we took a whole episode just to discuss the preface or the foreword or something like that no, that was just a dinner
1: we had with <laughs> some other people. were oh, was
0: it? I like that for another book. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, the the goal of the book, he basically makes this point of like, look, wh- the narratives are at a point where if someone says, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, this is a this is a thing that makes sense to people. This is a thing that people support. This is a thing that people like, you know, promote, whatever it might be. Oh. And, and rightly so. And even like 10 years, even like 20 years ago, like ten, 10 to 20 years ago, maybe even like five to 10 years ago, like the mainstream public's view on these things would have been very different. And if you go back like two generations, if you go back to this guy's granddad, he he thinks like my granddad would not understand, that like the statement just wouldn't make sense to my granddad. And so like, how, have, how has culture evolved so rapidly um, that we can, A, like people today Hold like very different viewpoints on quite big, quite like big, like far things with quite big, far-reaching implications. People today hold very, very different viewpoints than they would have held like five to ten to twenty years ago. It's a very rapid cultural shift, and how, and you know, what how has the psyche evolved from like our generation, well, for, from our like grandparents' generation to our generation, where there's just a massive rift in terms of like how we view our how, how we view like selfhood and identity and things like this all right so that was kind of what we we're talking about um, and so i think where we ended things last time is that like we i think we we kind of touched on this idea that um, we're now in the era of psychological man there's a lot of inner psychologizing of like you know how you know what is my how am I feeling like mm, feeling the fact yeah, feelings of facts, kinds of vibes. And and like, this is like, this is how, this is how our minds operate. Yeah. And you can commit a crime against someone by kind of
0: hurting their sense of self.
1: Yeah. Like sense of self is, you know, the sense of self comes from within and like, um, you know, true authenticity comes purely from within and outside forces that like, that, you know, might sort of, um, you know, not support that or like, outside forces that might con- you know outside views that might like contradict this like internally generated sense of self um are like you know bad basically like how you know that, that that's kind of what we mean by psychological man um and so uh right so let's let's get let's get the highlights So yeah i just i just to add like one more summary thing his 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 whole the whole thing about the book is like look this uh the seeds the seeds and like all the groundwork had been laid over the past 200 years that allowed this like rapid shift of the past 20 years to happen it's not like it just like sprouted overnight like 20 years ago or whatever like the groundwork had been being laid for a very long time uh okay cool okay so he talks about you know he kind of talks about like various like philosophers and thinkers and psychology you know all the various like intellectual contributions that led to where we are um Okay, so he um, he makes a link to a guy called Hegel, German philosopher, nineteenth century. Um, one of like the core points that that Hegel makes is that a human being is most self-conscious when she knows that other people are acknowledging her as a self-conscious being, you know?
0: So he's self-conscious as in conscious of the self or like self-conscious as in sort of the anxious seat definition
1: not so much the anxiety no not so much the anxiety definition but just like the the awareness that other people are like perceiving you okay like we, we pay more attention to who we are who we are and like our identity and how we view ourselves when we know that other people are perceiving us in some way and so other other uh, okay and other other people acknowledging us as like self-conscious beings so um here's a here's kind of a, an example they give so Children often play improvised team sports in the schoolyard during recess. Typically, team captains, normally a couple of the stronger leadership types in the playground pecking order, taking turns to select players for their team. The moment of being selected often gives the one chosen a thrill, a feeling of excitement, of a satisfaction, and perhaps, more negatively, of superiority relative to those who have not yet been picked. That is a moment of being recognized, of being acknowledged as valuable by another, and crucially of knowing oneself, that one, uh, knowing oneself that one has been so acknowledged. Um, one imagines that this experience is somewhat different from that of say a Jack Russell Terrier whose master comes home after work and calls him to sit on his lap. So like this idea of like acknowledgement from the outside world and this feeling of being acknowledged, recognized, valued or whatever is basically just using this like playground example as like, hey, this is like quintessentially what this feeling is. It's like you're on the playground and you're picked on the team before someone else you're being acknowledged, valued, you know, etc. Um And like, this is different to like a dog who's like master, like calls them to sit down or whatever. Like the dog might be happy. Like he says, <clears throat> the, the Jack Russell may well be thrilled by the return of his master and by the fact that he's been acknowledged or recognized in this way. But unlike the child picked for the playground team, he will lack the self-consciousness necessary to reflect on the fact that he has been acknowledged.
0: Mm, okay. Okay. Cool. Um, that sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah. So this is what Hegel said.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah. Hegel kind of, you know, talked a lot about this kind of stuff. Um, and so, like, this is, um, you know, being, being one's authentic, you know, what, what one sees as one's, like, authentic self. This thing being validated by the external world mm. is now how we think about dignity. Oh, okay. You know, what do you mean? Like for for someone to have dignity
0: is to feel is for that person to feel validated by the external world.
1: Is for that person that person what 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 that person feels is their authentic self to be validated by the by the external world. Um, yeah, and, and ultimately for the express so psychological man or the ex, expressive individualism is, is is kind of the term we used last time of like. Uh, Yeah. So, for the expressive individual to receive recognition means that the assumptions of expressive individualism must be the assumptions of society as a whole. For the individual to be king, society must recognize the supreme value of the individual. Um, And so, like, the importance of, like, the dignity of the individual being, like, the paramount thing. Yeah, so I think he he is kind of talking about, like, the shift that society has gone through from being, what he says, honor-based, like based on the notion of honor to one being based on the notion of dignity. And in like the honor based society, there is some like normative social hierarchy that everyone agrees on. Even if you're, even if you're not high up on it, like you still like there's a normative social hierarchy. Um, Now we don't really have normative social hierarchy Um, and like society kind of recognizes the supreme value of the, uh, of the individual. Okay. All right, we'll jump to the next one. Yeah, so then then he talks a lot about he talks about okay, like look, oh, this is all this is all well and good, okay, F- like fine, granted, right? Individual is really important, like our like sense of self is is really important to us, and like you know we want the acknowledgement of other people and the validation of other people to validate and acknowledge this like sense of self, right? Like we want to be picked on the playground, kind of thing. Like we want to be we want to be like knowledge like for who we think we are and 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 whatever it might be now next he he asked the question of like okay fine you know expressive individualism psychological man this is who we are we expressive expressively individualistic and we are psychological man um but why does our culture have the shape that it does and in particular why why is sex like the linchpin of all of this stuff. Ooh, okay. Um, so, he's, uh, I'll read out Why does our social imaginary, the social imaginary mean, meaning like just like the narratives that we're all swimming in, whether we're aware of them or not. Why does our social imaginary make sex such a basic marker of identity and attitudes to sex such a fundamental test for recognition? Um, why does the public apparently need to know the sexual orientation of movie stars or their attitude to gay marriage when neither are particularly relevant to their technical competence to pursue their profession. Why is it so important to educate even elementary school children in the taxonomy of sexual preferences? It has not always been that way. Okay. Um, So he's kind of asking like, okay, look, we all about this like expressive individual stuff, but like, why is sex such a big deal as part of, as part of this? right? Right. I mean, you could say because it it's a pretty big part of people's lives. Well, I think he's saying like it's well, it, it being a pretty big part of people's identity, is is like a very new phenomenon. Basically, like right. historically, that has not that has not like been, uh, been so crucial.
0: Would it be reasonable to say like I, I feel like you know race is a pretty good, pretty big part of people's identities these days, in a way that it might not have been in the past, but as society recognizes the oppression that has been done to and continues to be done to certain minorities for yeah. example on race race grounds or on the sexual orientation grounds or on gender or sex grounds um, then those things feel like yeah more more of a badge of identity like for example if you went to Pakistan, most people probably wouldn't have Muslim as part of their identity, like or yeah, be, yeah. be particularly like kind of peddling of that because everyone is Muslim mm. broadly. Yeah. If you have Christian as in Pakistan, then, you know, that would be a clear part of your identity. Yeah. yeah. But a lot of people on moving to the UK now they're like, Oh, I, I need to hold even stronger to this identity because I am a minority in the space. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. feeling some sense of oppression potentially. Therefore I am, I am Muslim. Like it's a core part of who I am. I'm Pakistani, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, was, is it? Could that, could that be a reasonable explanation as to why Sex and sexual orientation, also so sexual orientation and gender identity and stuff are now coming to the forefront because we are recognizing that, oh, damn, people have been oppressed in this grounds for a while. Yeah, maybe we should do something about this.
1: um potentially, let me think about that for a sec. I'm just trying to remember like the context of what he's saying and what he has said in this stuff yeah, I think I think that definitely makes sense, but like you know the the question that he like starts off the book with. Which is around like, how does the fr- you know why does the phrase like I'm a m- man in a woman's body like why why does this like why do we make sense of this now where we didn't before mm. like I think it's what you're basically saying is like look if if like some minority group has been oppressed for some time then like it seems natural that they mm. that like the the axis along which they've been oppressed will be. Uh, a bigger part of that, a big part of their identity and will matter to them. Mm. That That's all well and good. I think he's, I think he's talking about the, the, sh- the, the shift in all of us, right. Of like this sort of inner psychology, psychologizing and the way we all shape our identities um, ha- has changed. Not just like your groups, but really everyone, the way we all, the, the way we all like think about our identities has changed from being like, um you know out outwards onto us to being like inwards out kind of thing as in like we you know we are who we feel we are we are who we think we are and like it's it's kind of coming from ourselves i think that, that's kind of the big change that he's saying and then i think the i think the other thing is that like like when when we say like oppressed group right the there's a question of like okay how are you grouping people like what categories are you even putting people in in order to like oppress them or in order to treat them differently so sure. and the categories that, like the categories that we have for us, like if if you think about all the various labels you associate with yourself now, and if you imagine someone like four hundred years ago, they would they would have very different categories for grouping people, and like the the categories that we think about have changed quite a lot, and like you know sexual sexual identity, gender identity is now, and the way we view that is like now very very different than like how people have viewed would have viewed their identity like. You know four hundred years ago
0: so four hundred years ago it might have been a baker or apprentice blacksmith I, I don't or, know or like- I don't I don't know I, I don't know what it' had
1: been four hundred years ago okay. but, for, but for example like probably like let's say let's say you were attracted to men and women yep probably th- probably like the idea of like I am bisexual and this is like a really core cool part of who I am and this is like yeah they, probably the way you would have viewed that viewed that your thoughts and feelings about that would have been quite different than today because like the the sort of sexual identity and gender identity component is like we we think about that in a very different way okay this, this is a book i've been like i've probably read like five percent of it and i meaning to get through it it's a book called after virtue by a guy called alistair mcintyre this is apparently this book is like apparently like the biggest deal in moral philosophy in like the last hundred years or something.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, it's about this idea of emotivism. Um, and like, I don't have like a really deep understanding, but, but the general sense is that like, yeah, basically we're, we're, kind, of, we're kind of at like a point in uh, sort of mor- moral discourse where everything ultimately amounts to, I think this is right because I feel like it is right. Yeah, let me see if I can find a highlight from After Virtue about this. Ah, okay. No, there's probably a better summary of emotivism in this chapter. McIntyre's view is that a moral philosophy characteristically presupposes a sociology. This means that ethical discourse arises out of and assumes a set of beliefs about the nature of the society in which it occurs. Um, And his view is that... Put simply, this is, again, this is about, like, to maximise view. Put simply, modern ethical discourse is chaotic because there is no longer a strong community consensus on the nature of the proper ends of human existence. Ends meaning, like, like purposes. Um, if morality is a function of the social conventions of the community, and yet the community lacks consensus on those social conventions, um, or those social conventions are hotly contested, ethical chaos is the result. Um uh, we should be clear that making ethics a matter of community conventions does not necessarily demand moral relativism. Those community conventions could, in theory, be rooted in universal realities, such as natural law, but it does point to the need for the community to agree on its conventions in order for meaningful moral discussion and decision-making to take place. Um, And then McIntyre, if, as McIntyre claims, every set of moral values presupposes a set of social assumptions... Then what are the major social assumptions that he sees as dominant in the West? The key one for McIntyre is what he calls emotivism. And I think like in his in his book, Half Virtue, like he basically makes this claim that like like we are in a emotivist society, right? And and he defines it as follows. Emotivism is the doctrine that is quite quite like a quite like a bold claim. Um like it would be surprising for someone to hear this emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments and more specifically all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference expressions of attitude or feeling uh, insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character like basically if someone makes any kind of evaluative judgment or moral moral judgment um nowadays um at its root like if, if you if you follow the argument or whatever like at its root no one has any shared foundation they can appeal to. What everything will amount to is just like, hey, this it, this is a personal feeling of mine. There is there is no shared like grounding on which we can all agree. There is just like feelings. the The language of morality, as 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 it's now used, is really nothing more than the language of personal preference based on individual sentiments and feelings. And and this is like McIntyre's like key uh, yeah key thing. Um, His observation is that emotivism is a theory not of meaning, but of use. It is about how we use moral concepts and moral language, emotivism. And uh, I like the language we use for morality nowadays. It's a way of granting our personal feelings about stuff to, to, to be some kind of like objective authority. Okay. Look, we should probably stop soon, but let me, the, the, the way he starts this book is like really sick. Like when I, when I read chapter one of this book, it's probably like a couple of years ago. Now it was just so good. Um, all right so we're gonna we're gonna end this chapter just like setting the scene about emotivism and like what what is what does this mean to say that like look ultimately all moral discourse today amounts to like i feel this and 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 that's why this is correct um all right so i'm I'm reading chapter one we're now switching to after virtue by lester McIntyre. imagine that the natural sciences were to suffer the effects of a catastrophe a series of environmental disasters are blamed by the general public on the scientists. Widespread riots occur. Laboratories are burnt down. Physicists are lynched. Books and instruments are destroyed. Finally, a, a political mov- movement called Know Nothing uh, takes power. Know su- No Nothing. No Nothing,
0: like as, as a K N O W. Yeah, No Nothing. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Finally, a, polit- uh, a Know Nothing political movement takes power and successfully abolishes science teaching in schools and universities, imprisoning and executing the remaining scientists. Um they're trying to do away with science. They're not happy with science. Um there were some environmental disasters and it's all being blamed on science, right? And now people are like down with science, right? Later, later still, there is a reaction against this destructive movement and enlightened people seek to revive science, although they have largely forgotten what it is. So basically this movement succeeds. It's like, you know, science was responsible for these natural disasters. We're gonna like kill all the scientists, burn all the books, we're gonna like get rid of any evidence of science. Okay. Right. And they largely succeed, right, in this in this hypothetical world, right? So after that there's a reaction against this movement which is a bunch of enlightened people seeking to revive science although they've largely forgotten what it was um so that they're trying to like you know they know the science used to be this thing these people got rid of it we should try and bring it back and so that they're now like trying to piece together science right and so uh, but, but all they possess are fragments um a knowledge of experiments detached from any knowledge of the theoretical context which gave them significance um they have parts of theories unrelated Uh, either to the other bits and pieces of theory which they possess or or to experiment. Uh, They have instruments whose use has been forgotten. They have half chapters from books, single pages from articles, not always fully legible, torn, you know, charred, stuff like this. Nonetheless, all these fragments are re-embodied in a set of practices which go under the revived names of physics, chemistry, and biology. Okay, so they've like found fragments of like what science, you know, of, of like evidence of science, and experiments and books and things like that—they've pieced it together, and they're like, "All right, these ones, these ones are the biology ones; these are the chemistry ones; these are the physics ones, right?" Adults argue with each other about the respective merits of relativity theory, evolutionary theory, and phlogiston theory, although they possess only a very partial knowledge of each. Children learn by by heart the surviving portions of the periodic table, and recite as incantations some of the theorems of Euclid, mathematician, um, geometer nobody or almost nobody realizes that what they are doing is not natural science in any proper sense at all for everything that they do and say conforms to certain canons of consistency and coherence and those contexts which would be needed to make sense of what they're doing have been lost perhaps irretrievably. so they're kind of like they're um yeah they're kind of like doing these things involving scientific artifacts um but they're not like doing science in any proper sense of the word Right. <clears throat> in such a culture, men would use expressions such as neutrino, mass, specific gravity, atomic weight, in systematic and often interrelated ways, which would resemble in lesser or greater degrees the ways in which such expressions had been used in earlier times before scientific knowledge had been lost. In such a culture, men would use all these different technical terms, um, you know, in lesser or greater degrees in which, uh, in the ways that they were used before the scientific knowledge had been lost. Um, but many of the beliefs presupposed by the use of these expressions would have been lost and there would appear to be an element of arbitrariness and even of choice in their application, which would appear very surprising to us. Um, so like, you know, they might be using the term like neutrino, uh, without really understanding, like. What this the concept of neutrino depends on, like you know what, like etc. What would appear to be rival and competing premises for which no further argument could be given would abound. Yeah, there'll be lots of like competing premises where like you can't really get into a reasonable or productive discussion or argument about it. It's just like this is my premise, this is your premise,
0: can't do anything about it. Can I just say something? What? You gesticulating with the microphone Oh, yeah. very, very strange to listen to when people are listening to Okay, Okay, yeah. yeah I so would please attempt to be a little bit more static with the microphone. Um, I'll carry on reading. Uh, subjectivist
1: theories of science would appear and would be criticized by those who held that the notion of truth embodied in what they took to be science was incompatible with subjectivism. You know, some people would say, like, you know, the science stuff is subjective. Um, other people would be like, no, science is like, you know, the subjectivism is not compatible with science. Like, Science is about, like, objective truth, you know, whatever. This imaginary possible world is very like one that some science fiction writers have constructed. We may describe it as a world in which the language of natural science, or parts of it at least, continues to be used, but is in a grave state of disorder. We may notice that if in this imaginary world analytical philosophy were to flourish, it would never reveal the fact of this disorder. Um, For the techniques of... Yeah, this is quite important, of course. If... if if we were in this world, this like this like post science re- science revival world, where like we've we've like lost most of what we know about science, and we've pieced together other fragments, and now we're like trying to trying to like do science. Now he says, in this world, we if in this imaginary world, analytical philosophy were to flourish, it would never reveal the fact of this disorder, for the techniques of analytical philosophy are essentially descriptive and descriptive of the language of the present at that the analytical philosopher would be able to elucidate the conceptual structures of what was taken to be scientific thinking and discourse in the imaginary world in precisely the way that he elucidates the conceptual structures of natural science as it is you know we're in this world we've lo- we've lost the true like roots the true foundations that you know the tr- the true substance of like all this science type stuff we don't know that we've lost it because it's been lost we have fragments of it that we we've now pieced together the point he's making is that like if you were like uh, a genius philosopher in this world, because of like what we have access to, you know, in like analytic philosophy, you wouldn't actually there there would be no way for you to reach the conclusion that actually there was this real world of science beforehand. We now have the fragments because all you can look at is the fragments. There's no way to arrive at the conclusion that actually like the with the meat of this we've actually lost the meat of this stuff, and we've you know, this isn't this is this isn't real. Um, he says, nor again would phenomenology or existentialism be, be able to discern anything wrong. All the structures of intentionality would be what they are now. The task of supplying an epistemological basis for these false simulacra of natural science would not differ in phenomenological terms from the task as it is presently envisaged. I don't really know what phenomenology... I have no idea what that's going um, Okay, but basically I think you get... I a think l- A lot of this shit is going way over my head. Okay, I, th- I think you get the general concept, which is like, look... We had the we had this like we had the world in which like we know how to do science. Fine, we know how to run experiments. We know the point of this stuff. Like okay. we try, we're trying to like learn more about the natural world, right? That
0: that world was there. Now of, we've just got like scraps and tatters and fragments and stuff.
1: Now we've got like a Bunsen burner here. We've got a few pages from some book there. We've got some like insight in some like diction, science dictionary, Fine. and we're like trying to piece together like what science is. Okay. And like, we think we're doing it. And like, we, you know. Because we're using the right words. Because we're using scientific words and things like that. And like, you know, we, we've kind of grouped things in the right groupings. So like, oh, these are race biology, whatever, right? Okay. Um, if all you can do is analyze the pieces in front of you, yep, you never reach the conclusion. That they were once part of a bigger hole, That they were once part of a bigger hole, and that like, your arrangement of the pieces does, you know, actually doesn't really make any sense or something. Fine. And so now, now he's saying, what is the point of constructing this imaginary world inhabited by fictitious pseudoscientists and real genuine philosophy? The, this is a key highlight from this book. The hypothesis which I wish to advance is that in the actual world which we inhabit today, the language of morality is in the same state of grave disorder as the language of natural science was in the imaginary world. What we possess, if this view is true, are the fragments of a conceptual scheme Parts, parts which now lack those contexts from which their significance derived. We possess indeed simulacra uh, of morality. We continue to use many of the key expressions, but we have very largely, if not entirely, lost our comprehension, both theoretical and practical or, of uh, of morality. So he's basically setting up this kind of world of like, you know, imagine like science got destroyed and we had like fragments and words remaining and then
0: we were like going about. So you're saying it. that like, similarly morality as a concept has been
1: the, the language of morality that we use today is like he he feels like he, he's saying is that is at a similar point okay
0: where where i can say like incest is bad because uh and i've got some like words that i can string together but really back in the day in hypothetical world there would have been a whole like foundational basis for why incest is bad
1: i i think so something like that
0: i, I haven't got to the end
1: of the book but okay. the point the point he, he makes in the book is that's that, a, like, That's a good way of saying you've read five percent of
0: it, huh? That's a good way of saying you've read five percent of the book.
1: I did say I read five percent of the book,
0: but you just said I haven't gotten to the end of the book. Oh, right, yeah, like very generous of you. <laughs>
1: no, no, but this is uh, this this is quite important because like the point that he does make is yeah. that like um, the, the emotivism, which is kind of the state that we're in now, where like any you know if 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 any if anyone tries to make like a a moral claim or a moral argument at its core the argument is this is right because I feel like it is right. Okay. that, that That's like, that's the place so see, he feels like so we're at. That,
0: is it like, like, back in the day, we used to have a source of, quote, objective morality, which is, this is right because the book says so. Whereas now... We don't believe in the book anymore, and therefore so we're he's saying tr- he's trying to okay. So in general, he's trying to bring about some kind of a revival of,
1: or it's like ma- make make a case for a return to something more like virtue ethics, where we can all agree on certain things. We can all agree that like uh, courage is virtuous. We can all agree that this thing is virtuous, that this other thing is sure. like dishonorable. You know, yeah. Like again, I have I haven't read the book, but basically, um, yeah. That that's kind of the I. I I think that's kind of the general gist of the points that Alistair McNair is, is making of like, hey, we're kind of at this interminable point when it comes to um, d- moral discourse where there is no way for two people to like really, yeah, you just have a bunch of people with competing premises and there's no way to like dig down and like te- tease them apart or like say why one is actually right and one is actually wrong, <laughs> this kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so just to kind of jump back before we end, um, yeah, I thought this—I thought this was like—I thought it was like a really profound like setup to the book of like presenting this imaginary world and getting you to kind of understand like, mm. oh yeah, yeah, that's pre- that's pretty weird, and it's like, boom, you're in the world, bitch, <laughs> kind of thing. Love it, you know. <laughs> that's what you took away from the book. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so where we'll stop is um the uh verizon travel model self talking about emotivism and its link to all of this kind of stuff and i think like you can sort of see see kind of links about like f- feelings being like the facts and like everything ultimately being like how someone feels and and you can't really go any deeper than that or like have discourse on any different level than that yeah so i think we should i think we should end it there maybe i'll do some uh pre-reading for the next because yeah i think this i think this emotivism thing is like quite interesting it is a bit like academic
0: uh but yeah like, i'm gonna feel like i feel like you need to do a bunch of reading on this so you can explain it like i'm five
1: yeah yeah it's like about 80 percent like of
0: what you said went over my head
1: yeah, yeah i don't think i can explain it that well right now okay yeah so let me over the next week i will revisit some of these pages sweet and then i think like introducing emotivism to the pod and how it links to um this guy's rise and triumphs upon himself i love it pretty good
0: all right Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Maybe we'll see you next week, (laughs) hopefully. Fingers crossed. We will see you next time, hopefully. or DM us at noverthinking on Twitter, please. Thanks again for listening, and we'll
1: see you next time.